Welcome one and all to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. Today is Friday, September 10th, 2021. I'm your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at NMPBS. And we, uh, as usual, been very busy this week, as I know you have as well, a short week for a lot of you uh, after the Labor Day holiday weekend. But that does not mean we don't have plenty to talk about, and we are going to kick things off as we usually do in our Friday podcast with our line opinion panel. And this week, that is made up of regular Diane Snyder, a former state senator, also a former state lawmaker, Eric Riego, and we are joined once again by Julianne Grimm, editor and publisher of the Santa Fe New Mexican. You may have caught this news uh, this week that Virgin Galactic, which of course is based now out of Spaceport America down by Las Cruces, is actually grounded. We talked about a little over a month ago about their historic uh, space flight as they get ready to do commercial space flights from Spaceport America. But it has been revealed now through some reporting that there were issues with that flight that have now led the FAA to ground uh, Virgin Galactic for the time being. Lots to talk about here. What exactly was it that went wrong? What does it mean for their future plans? And what does it mean that they didn't release this information immediately and are now spinning it as if they put a halt to things to work on some issues where then we find out the FAA has actually grounded them. So let's jump right into that conversation here now with host Gene Grant and the Line Opinion Panel. Now, properly, um, T. Gonzalez, she's the po- uh, Poverty Public Benefits Director for the organization and also workers' rights attorney Felipe Guevara. Felipe, thank you both. Uh, T, thank you both for joining us as well. Sorry about that little hiccup there with the uh, technology on my end. Let me start, Felipe, with you. If I could ask you to do this, um, just a quick sort of a summary of what's happening with these federal benefits ending and how it affects New Mexico, not in the bigger overall sense, but I'm, I'm talking about um, our, our organization here who hands out benefits, how, we, how our state benefits are working in conjunction with the federal stuff. What happened on the 4th? What ended and who did it end for? Yeah, so um, roughly, well, about four programs ended on um, unemployment, federal programs that were actually enacted at the beginning of the pandemic um, to help with individuals that couldn't get on standard unemployment. Um, The four different programs are Pandemic Emergency Unemployment Compensation, which is PUC, Pandemic Unemployment Assistance, PUA, Mixed Earners Unemployment Compensation, MEUC, and Federal Pandemic Unemployment Compensation. Between these four programs, there was an extra 600, uh, 300 given to people um, for their benefits. And then some of these other programs were extensions to state UI. And another one was a sort of catch all for all individuals that didn't qualify for standard unemployment. Now, roughly in New Mexico, we have about 67,000 people currently unemployed and on unemployment or one of these unemployment programs. When they ended on September 4th, roughly about 50 to 55,000 of those people are being kicked off these programs. Now, it's important to keep in mind that about 10 to 15,000 of these individuals will be able to get onto an extension that the state will continue offering. Mm-hmm. Um, that extension, and that's you know, if you haven't exhausted your, your, your standard employment, if you haven't exhausted, exhausted that, 
you'll remain on that for about 26 weeks. Then you'll get kicked onto this. It's called a federal state extended benefit program. And that program will give for about 13 more weeks of benefits. But it is a minor group of individuals, 10 to 15,000 of that about 50 to 55,000 people who have just outright lost their benefits this weekend. Wow. Uh, that's an excellent summary, but I have to ask, of course, Felipe, what happens to those folks, that extra 40,000 some odd people in the next couple of weeks? Is it just the end of the table and just fall off? Or what happens there? Unfortunately, there hasn't been much um, put in place for those individuals that continue needing to be on these unemployment programs. Like mm -hmm. I said, the state New Mexico has decided to do this federal state extended benefit program, which will give an extra 13 weeks, but that's only for those individuals who do qualify for our state benefits in the first place. And so those individuals will have a means of reapplying to a system that will give them some, some benefit. For those roughly 40,000 people we're talking about though, there is nothing in place. The federal government has authorized states to put in place um, extensions or to continue extending these programs as of now as of today though no state has taken on that effort no state has decided to continue any of the federal programs that were providing um, benefits to individuals that don't traditionally get benefits or can't qualify for benefits under the state unemployment system mm, interesting there teague you know your issue area you deal with a lot of things um, for folks very much in need of uh, food benefits food programs, things like that. And to flesh out where we were just were with Felipe on, on what happens for folks over the next couple of weeks and from your point of view and, and some of the things that you track. Sure, uh, thanks so much, Gene. I think what the pandemic showed is that everybody deserves enough food to eat and adequate health care mm -hmm. and money to meet basic expenses. Everyone has bills to pay, whether they're in work or out of work. And it was this health emergency that really opened the door for the federal government to expand public benefits in a way we've never seen before. And now that's coming to an end. So in New Mexico, um, one of the things that the state did was allow people to remain on Medicaid, even if they would be normally taken off for being a little over income. And people were kicked over th every three months um, throughout this pandemic period, but that's ending. And in January, 60,000 people are going to start losing their Medicaid benefits at about 10,000 people a month. That's the estimate that the department has given for how they're gonna roll people off. Um, the other huge program was the SNAP emergency allotment program. Right. Typically <clears throat> a family that's eligible for SNAP will only get um, a, a, an amount of the SNAP allotment based on their income. So a family of three is eligible for up to $616 a month, mm -hmm. uh, but that number is reduced based on income. During the pandemic, uh, the federal government authorized families to receive the maximum allotment, even if they had a little bit of income that would normally reduce that. And that brought in, just into the state of New Mexico, $479 million in food benefits. And we know that every single one of those dollars was spent in the community. Uh, similarly, <clears throat> one of the best programs was Pandemic EBT. And this was a meal replacement program for kids who were out of school. And um, HSD sent, sent an EBT card to families for the value of the, of the lost meals. And we know that that brought in another $330 million into the state of New Mexico, every dollar of which um, was spent. That all ends. 
Um, and so we know that children who go without food have a lifelong impact, a negative impact on their health and educational attainment, even lifetime earnings. Um, and so we're not out of this pandemic yet and the federal government should continue all of these programs, but instead uh, the government, the federal government is shifting the burden to the states to determine how they should use these one-time ARPA funds. Um, we know that these programs have reduced childhood poverty and mortality during the pandemic. And really it shouldn't take a pandemic for the federal government to step up in this way. Mm -hmm. Do we have do we have any indication, Teague, where the state of New Mexico is on this? Any rumblings that we might in fact take up the offer to move ahead forward on our own with our state, you know, guidance versus the feds? They did, ex they, uh, the state did elect to extend the emergency allotment for one additional month. Yeah. We don't know if they're going to use the ARPA funds for any additional months. It is unfortunate that the federal government has decided to shift the burden to the states in this way. Um, and we hope that New Mexico will elect to use those, those ARPA monies in ways that will continue these programs, the ones that Felipe mentioned, and, and also uh, these food and healthcare benefits. Mm -hmm. Very much so. Professor, Mar Professor Martinez, good to have you on as always. Different mm -hmm. format than the usual where I see you, but a, a lot of the roads lead to housing, what we're talking about here, just basically keeping a roof over your head. Mm -hmm. How, you know, just a very general open question here. How challenging are you seeing this situation forming here for New Mexicans uh, after this ending of the federal program? Yeah, I mean, I think it is going to be, <clears throat> excuse me, going to have some unexpected uh, effects because you know, we have, as you know, there's still a stay from the state Supreme Court that is preventing enforcement of some evictions, not all. Mm -hmm. And a big pot of money from the federal government that's dedicated for housing and utilities, um, emergency rental assistance, uh, it's called, we call it. And the, you know, they've, the DFA has been tasked with getting that out and they've been, it's a big job and something that's unprecedented, uh, trying, to, trying to distribute that much money and keep it focused on the housing and utility aspect of, that it's earmarked for. But it hasn't been super speedy and they've had challenges getting that out, not just New Mexico, every state. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, uh, the federal government sent out uh, basically a, a one-page note that said, hey, get this money out faster. Here's some ways you can do that. And VFA no has been, you know, whenever I talk to them about things that we're seeing in terms of the, the hiccups and obstacles, responsive and say, okay, how can we fix that? But the fact, of, the fact is this money that's supposed to go for rent is still not getting out there as quickly as, you know, and to the, all the places that it's needed. So from a housing standpoint, right, this UI, the unemployment insurance and all of the other ways, and, you know, that money was coming in, cash assistance to people, right? And as much as I love housing assistance, I really love cash assistance because we trust people to decide for themselves how to spend the money. Uh, and put it in the most, you know, where it's most needed. But some folks were using that to pay their rent, to pay their utilities, right? To keep their utilities from getting cut off to, you know, and some folks may not be eligible for the emergency rental assistance or not know about it, or just not have the, you know, several pieces of paper and documents that are needed. But so that was an important backstop to the folks who were, you know, who were potentially facing eviction, facing, the problems paying their rent and utilities that is just not there anymore, right? And 
folks are, you know, now going to have to make tougher choices, I think. And despite the all the money that we're seeing dedicated to rental assistance and utilities, we're still going to see people having trouble falling into arrears because they were, you know, relying on that money that that was coming in. Um, and so, you know, the the idea that some have floated is that well, it's actually harmful to us because giving all this money to people is a disincentive for them to go to work, right? All of the data suggests that whatever impact there might be, it's minimal in terms of, you know, we have a natural experiment. Many, many states have already cut this off way before New Mexico did, and they have not seen their economies rocket back to, to health, right? And some folks have returned to work, but we haven't seen a ton of job growth. And the Delta variant has, you know, this was supposed to be a handoff period between the federal assistance and the market, but that, I don't know when that meeting's gonna be, but it's not taking place right now. And so I think, you know, a lot of the assumptions that have been made are just inaccurate um, and bad predictions about where we'd be with the pandemic or, you know, economic theories that haven't panned out. But what it means is, you know, I focus, as you know, so much on housing, housing instability. And I think that unfortunately, even though we say, yeah, there's all this money for housing, we're still going to see some negative impacts for folks because of the <clears throat> because of the UI changes, you know, to act to housing stability, among many, many other things that we're going to see. Why do I get the sense that October and early November is going to be a very stressful time on this housing issue? Again, if this is from the outside looking in, Serge, it just seems like some, there's a lot of forces coming to bear in the next 30 or 45 days that are going to make this incredibly challenging. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is, you know, the, the uh, as Philippe was saying, we'll still see some folks who are, you know, for the next little bit, you know, getting some of this money and we'll be able to sort of, uh, we, it won't be quite as catastrophic as we, you know in real time as we might think, but it's still a calamity you know approaching us because you know as you said right there's this that's been cut off. There's you know folks are having to make decisions now about okay now that unemployment is not an option, do I go back to work and worry about not having flexibility to take care of my kids if they get sent home from school because of a you know positive test at the school? Folks trying to decide now how to make tougher choices about you know, where to put their money for food, medicine, you know, whatnot. And uh, that goes for housing as well. I mean, it's just a really terrible time to decide, time to do this. And I realized the decision, a lot of these decisions were made months ago when we thought we had a rosier time. Uh, but, you know, this is not the, the emergent from the pandemic moment that everyone thought it would be. And it is seriously myopic of the Fed, federal government and anyone who has the ability to weigh in on, to do something about this, to not say, okay, we, you know, we need to keep this lifeline out there, keep people afloat, because otherwise we will, we'll be seeing people getting, who were doing okay, right, uh, or at least had been surviving. Now, all of a sudden, after 18 months of keeping thing, people propped up, saying, oh, now you're on your own, you know, there's, that's obviously just not wise strategy and not likely to end well for folks as, mm. you know, as we get into colder season when people are indoors even more and right. know, challenges await. That's what worries me. I'm hearing you're, you're loud and clear there. Um, Felipe, I got a question. You know, it, it's interesting uh, when you read about something that uh, Serge just uh, referenced a second ago, that's the states that ended their benefits earlier than others. 
And there's a bunch of studies out there, I'm sure you've seen them as well, that really don't show a lot of uptick in people looking for work, even though that was the prediction of those governors to end those benefits. Sort of a weird human dynamic here that people think there's if you do A, the B is going to automatically happen. <laughs> you know, what's your sense of that from a New Mexico perspective? Does that actually work that way? That when you just end things for people, people just automatically just run out there and just do the right thing? And as you referenced, you know, it, these studies are not showing that 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 wave of people or, or this wave is, is happening towards those individuals going to jobs. Um, and it's important to keep in mind that here in New Mexico, we currently are tied for the second highest unemployment rate in the country at 7.6%. The mm -hmm. only other state that has a higher unemployment rate is Nevada. And we know that they have a large industry that's sort of shut down right now. So it makes sense that they would be at about 7.7%. So we're about one percentage under where all these other all these other states, the, the highest state is, and we're tied with some of the largest states in the country, like New York and California, for our, our unemployment rate. Now, these individuals that we're expecting to go back, it's not as simple as them as us saying, "Well, there's jobs available," right? Because that's much of what's also being reported. There's many jobs. There's many jobs. There's many jobs. And it's important to keep in mind that many of the individuals that are going to be kicked off these programs are individuals who weren't doing standard work, who weren't employees potentially. They were running their own small businesses. I've spoken to workers who have businesses that, you know, it goes from decorating small venues to providing food at different events. And for those types of business owners, they, they don't have the ability to go back to doing what they were doing before because things just aren't functioning at the same rate that they were. Um, so to expect that these individuals would just give up on maybe a 15, 20, 25 year business and just go take any job, it's irrational. And I don't think any of us would do something like that. Um, wages are also a big problem. Many of the jobs that are out there are very low wages. Many of these individuals throughout COVID have reprioritized what their attention to work versus attention to family is. And they, they believe that they don't want to go work for perhaps even minimum wage, which we've all seen isn't even a livable wage. Um, and it's difficult to, to tell those individuals, well, you know, go take any job so that you can at least be in the market. And as you were saying, um, it, it, it's not showing that these people are going forward. You know, there's some statistics showing that there was about a two percentage um, rate of, of workers going back to work in certain states. And it even shows, other studies are showing that the economies of these places are even suffering because the, 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 the consumer no longer has a way to spend. And so the economies are actually taking a hit in these places. And then the final factors that aren't going to lead people back to work are that, you know, COVID, as uh, Professor Martinez mentioned, is still rampant. We have this Delta variant. Many individuals are still immunocompromised. That hasn't changed. Many individuals still can't find childcare for their, for, their, for their little ones. And so it's difficult to assume that everyone that is unemployed has the straight, narrow path to just go back to work. It's, it's actually a lot more complicated. And you have to consider health factors. You have to consider wages. And the fact that many individuals just aren't in a place yet to go back to work, even though there might be jobs out there. I read, I read a lot about, you know, we have a lot of commingled families here generationally, as we all know. 
And Teague, you know, a lot of folks don't want to go back out there in the muck and then walk it back in for their mom and dad. They just went through that and, and you know, survived 2020, you know, and they just don't want to go back there. How do you, how do you literally tell someone to get over your fear of killing your own dang parents, you know what I mean, and get out there? It just, as I'm, I'm just trying to add on to what Felipe is mentioning here, it's not that simple, it seems to me, when you read it, at the psychology of going back to work. I think people are in a very difficult position right now, and they're actually making highly rational choices, mm -hmm. um, self-interested rational choices. I think what this pandemic has shown is that public benefit programs work. And when we expand them and use them, we're able to help each other um, through difficult times. And that shouldn't end just because we believe a difficult time may be ending. People go through hard times all the time, and sometimes families have to make choices between buying healthy foods and school supplies or diapers and formula or making a car payment. And that existed pre-COVID. And if we don't continue to have robust public programs like this, those choices, those hard choices that people had to make, they're gonna go back to making them. Um, if anything, also, I, I, I appreciate how this moment has opened the opportunity to talk about a guaranteed basic income, um, which would eliminate the need for, um, or at least supplement all of these different public benefit programs that all have different eligibility levels and program rules for participation. A guaranteed basic income would give people that cushion that we all need to decide to make a car repair or go back to school or get, finish getting your GED or be able to take care of your child um, if they're young or get sick. So I, I, I wanna highlight that too, that, that there's been some very interesting cash assistance programs that have taken off around the country and, and in this state. Um, in particular, one in Stockton, where they followed participants for 24 months and showed that the impact that that little extra cash had on people's lives, not just had financial health benefits to themselves, but also psychological benefits. It just reduces stress on your life when you have enough cash to survive. And I think what Felipe said is a really good point. Forcing people to go back to low wage labor in horrible working conditions are not the best working conditions with very little benefits. Um, is, is a choice that people are now saying we don't want to make. And I, I really uh, think we need to pay attention to this moment. Mm -hmm. Hi gang, it's Matt, the producer. Um, Jefferson is one of our viewers who's watching and he points out that, um, yeah, he sees jobs, but he doesn't necessarily see opportunity, Teague, which I think sort of goes to what you're talking about. Um, he also um, was asking uh, about something that Serge mentioned, which is, um, why are we not paying tenants? Why is this assistance going uh, to landlords? Serge, you mentioned, um, you know, giving cash to people and trusting them to spend it in the place where it's um, most useful for them and, and perhaps most beneficial for the community. Could you touch on that? Yeah, I mean, yeah, fundamentally, the answer is we should be, you know, I think we should be giving the money directly to tenants and saying, here, you know, we trust you to pay the rent or make those make the right choices, make the best choices rather for you. But you know, and this goes a little bit to what Teague was saying, right? Instead of giving people some sort of basic income or saying, here's the assistance, it, all of these come with so many strings attached. And we've talked about this a little bit before on Mix and Focus about um, you know, concerns about fraud and waste and how to balance those with the desire to get money to where it needs to be to help people in need. And you know, as much as the ERAP 
program, the rentals rent emergency rental assistance program, you know, everyone's saying, hurry up, get this out, get this out. There's still an unwarranted uh, focus on this concern like, oh no, someone's gonna get a dollar that we don't think they should get, or there's gonna be some, some you know, way that this is used in a way that is not 100% sanctioned and approved. And so, you know, the reason that it's going to landlords is so that can be, you know, so the, so there's no chance that it doesn't go to someone who doesn't really need to pay the, the landlord or that they use the money for something else, right? These are concerns that are vastly overblown, but are part of every single assistance program, state, federal, local, where we, we spend so much time worrying about how are we going to keep this from being used in a way that we, you know, don't love that some people might not love or be worried about, you know, some misuse that it ends up holding back the so you know a ginorm a gigantic portion of the money that's supposed to go out until people have moved on or the need has passed because they've already got evicted and moved to someplace else or or whatnot. So anyway, the shorter answer is the reason is for reasons of perceived need for accountability uh, and, and whatnot. Um, but the larger reason is, you know, we just don't trust people, right? And we should, it makes no sense. Like I've said to, e, to DFA, if you give me a million dollars in cash, I will go stand at the eviction court and hand it out to everybody so they can pay their rent. And they did not take me up on that for whatever reason. But, you know, to me, that's, that's how this program should be going. Teague, let me go. Let me go back to something you were starting to talk about there, because that is something uh, Professor Martinez has talked about on the show, and it's interesting in this context. How much money were we talking about in, in Stockton that was given out to folks? What, what was the amount of money? They gave people five hundred dollars a month for twenty-four months. Um, so we're, we're not talking about a huge amount of money here. We're talking about a cushion, mm -hmm. um, and and what they they were able to track the way that those dollars were spent. And less than 1% was spent on alcohol and drugs. Um, the way that people used the funds was very much like a debit card. And so they saw that most people used the funds for um, regular basic expenses like food, um, buying food at a grocery store, um, like car repairs, um, uh, school supplies, clothes for your kids. Um, there was virtually no waste in that spending and 100% of it goes into the local economy. So there's a, a vast multiplier effect here um, in addition, um, what Serge was saying, I, I agree with completely, this, this notion that people are going to commit fraud or um, be engaged in uh, some kind of wasteful spending is, is completely been debunked. Um, people spend money um, in, in the way that they need to, making the best decisions for themselves and their family. And we should get over this idea that we need this administrative bureaucracy to be going after people. Um, to make sure they're spending the dollars the way that the state wants them to. Uh, it, it's clear from the way that the dollars were spent in the food stamp program, on the Medicaid program, on the pandemic EBT program, on the unemployment program, that people were able to stabilize their lives during the worst health crisis in a century and were able to do that because of government spending. And there was virtually no um, uh, oversight over that spending. We let go of that idea for the last 20 months. And I think we need to keep letting go of it as this pandemic ends um, and just get rid of fraud departments, get rid of this um, oversight of people's lives and just continue to believe that people know how to make the best decisions for themselves mm -hmm. and their families. Do you, have a, do you have a sense of where our own workforce solutions might be headed? We've lost 
Bill McCamley, he left, of course, uh, uh, citing threats on his life and his family during the heat of this whole thing. Is this a right time for us to strip down workforce solutions and start over? I mean, am I being too, uh, too aggressive here? Teague, what do you think? Or, oh, go ahead, go ahead, uh, Felipe. Look, at you just I'll about to say defer something. defer to Felipe. Please. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is the department we work with. And, and honestly, you know, I, I, I do know that there's been many struggles. Um, we've been tracking many of the different problems, particularly around unemployment, um, having to do with overpayments, uh, with continued claims. You know, there was a recent report that showed that around $250 billion in unemployment went out in overpayments. Um, and, and that means that it's all money that has to be collected again. It's going to create a huge sort of backlog of appeals, backlog of what we're already seeing in continuing benefits being given out to individuals. And so I, I do think that DWS has a huge task ahead of it still. They do not have things because these programs are ending. It doesn't mean that their workload is going to end. I think there are many things that happen through the administration of these programs that didn't go the way that they were hoping and that have created problems they now have to deal with. And to answer your question, I think I, I highlight these issues because I, I honestly don't think this is a time to sort of par down DWS. I think it is a time to think about how it's organized, how individuals are being trained. Many of the issues that we're seeing, we're seeing because people made simple mistakes, mistakes that through a, a more well thought out training or through more discussions with, with individuals that have been doing this could have gone differently or just stopping for a bit to, to understand exactly how to administer these programs correctly could have been, uh, that could have led to a lot more um, of these, these programs being administered properly within the state. And so I don't think it's the time to, to strip down right now and to try to rethink because there's so much on their plate that they need to continue dealing with. And they need to continue working hard to ensure that New Mexicans have the, 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 the safety net that unemployment creates. And like Serge and Teague have been saying, um, that's extremely necessary in the state. But I do think it's time to rethink how people are being trained, who's taking um, the mantle for unemployment particularly, which is gonna continue being a huge endeavor for unemployment for, mm -hmm. for the deep Department of Workforce Solutions, and also who is at the top and who's gonna be running that department. Right. At the top, that's a big one. Serge, please, absolutely. Yeah, so I, you know, am as vocal a critic uh, often, you know, of government agencies, you know, when I feel it's appropriate. But I do think DFA, Workforce Solutions, right, they were tasked with, here's a bunch of money, let's get it to people in need, you know, way more money than you've ever dealt with before, with programs that we've never dealt with before. And you know what? mistakes are going to happen, missteps, things that could have been, if we had sat down and prepared better, you know, known the pandemic was coming, we would have done things a lot different, obviously. So I'm actually pretty forgiving of all of, a lot of this, you know, these things that were done if, in the name of getting money to people in a time that they really needed them. So I'm, I'm not going to pile on, but I do, I mean, Felipe's after action report is a great idea, right? Let's, let's talk about all the things that happened and how we could do them better going forward and what might, um, how we might streamline things. But I do think it's important to recognize that you know, these were folks tasked with something that they don't normally do, or, you know, and especially in DFA's um, 
you know, uh, situation. They, they don't give out lots of money, don't do grants and whatnot in the same way. Um, and so it's, it's a time when I'm, you know, trying to look at this, like, you know what, just get that out, make some mistakes, that's fine, but let's get this money out there. And if we do it, if we don't have to be single most efficient way possible, I can live with that. I hope everyone can, because the end result here, the goal is to just get that money to the people who need it. And, uh, and then once the dust settles, which hopefully will be any day now, um, we can look back and say, okay, how can we do this better? Or how can we you know, rebuild stronger, better, or whatever um, from, from, from what we've seen? But I do think it's important to recognize that if I have to choose between effect, efficient, effective, well thought out, a government that goes slowly, or let's just get the money to people who we think we need it, you know, as quickly as possible. I'll take the second one any day of the week. Good deal. Similarly, I just want to lift up what uh, Secretary Sprays was able to do with the Human Services Department. Um, unlike other states, you know, less progressive states with a less progressive governor, um, you know, the, the Mexico sought almost every federal waiver that was available um, from the federal government for SNAP and Medicaid. So hundreds of thousands of people came into the benefits fold who had never been on it before. And HSD did everything they could to try and enroll people as fast as they could, including um, eliminating in-person interviews, taking self-attestation, which is just someone's sworn statement to whether or not they have income or not, making all kinds of flexibilities available um, to people because the government, the federal government authorized those flexibilities. And I would urge the federal government to continue to extend those flexibilities to the states that need it most a state like New Mexico with among, if not the highest unemployment rate, second to highest unemployment rate. Why end those flexibilities now? Mm -hmm. Teague, you know, we've had issues with workforce development when it comes specifically to SNAP benefits. Famously, there was a lot of, you know, game playing with paperwork and who was getting them and who was not getting them. Where, where are we now? Uh, has that been exacerbated because of COVID or have we gotten past that? Or where does that stand now? I have to say that un under the leadership of this governor and, and the current secretary for human services division, they've made incredible advancements um, in um, the, the corrective actions that were required, um, that the court uh, required them to take to deal with all of those illegal verifications that were happening in SNAP and Medicaid. Um, you know, that, that case is, is, is still uh, ongoing, but the uh, human services department has made uh, huge strides forward in reducing um, unnecessary paperwork requirements, uh, updating their IT system to the tune of millions of dollars so that they could reprogram it to um, appropriately account for people's income and which programs they were available for. Um, I, you know, there's, there's always a little bit more work that could be done, but um, in terms of where we were and where we are, they've made huge strides. This is good to hear. This is good to it hear. Is. Teague, I, I do have to ask you this though. We, we cannot have a proper conversation unless we talk about single women and moms specifically and the challenges they're going to be facing, uh, you know, poor single moms here. I, I have to say the same thing I said to uh, Professor Martinez a second ago. I'm very concerned about late October, early November, where it just seems like a lot of roads are going to be crashing at once. How, how, should we consider the needs for single moms a little bit differently here in, 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 in how we get help, money, whatever we need to for them? Yeah, I I think single parents, in particular single moms, are the average household size for them is a family of two children and a, and a single parent, usually a mom. So we're talking about three people here. It's not some misconception of a, of a, of a single mother with, with many kids. We're talking about two kids, um, usually under the age of six. Mm -hmm. um, and 
there, there isn't a lot for them right now. Um, unfortunately, under the prior governor, um, there were uh, huge changes made to the cash assistance program that helps those families. We saw a 40% drop in enrollment in the cash assistance program for single parents, and that, that decline has never been reversed. Um, now, it's something I think the governor and the, the secretary of HSD uh, would be interested in doing is figuring out how to reverse those changes made under the prior administration and also expand eligibility, uh, things that, that the agency could do by um, administrative action, executive action. So um, I look forward to hopefully working with the department to make those expansions so that more single parents can have the cash that they need to support their families. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Professor, where does that, where does that, what does that mean in housing? When you're talking about single people, I, you know, I was just literally just joking with uh, the guy that does my hair not two days ago that, you know, we're become Albuquerque is becoming like the coastal cities where relationships are 49% a uh, financial pact, if you get my drift. <laughs> it's just so expensive to live out there. Well, I'm seeing versions of that here in Albuquerque now, where if you're alone, it is a much harder deal on every front, but particularly housing and housing for single women. You know what I'm, you know what I'm saying here? Mm -hmm. You know, absolutely, right? We've talked about talked before about how, you know, there's a shortage of affordable housing um, and the the minimum wage doesn't allow anybody, you know, working one job 40 hours to afford, you know, a two bedroom place mm -hmm. in any city in, in the country, including Albuquerque. And unless you have, if you don't have someone sharing the bills, you know, paying half the rent, um, it is obviously a challenge, right? And I think that's also, you know, we talked about the the numbers of people who are going to lose their unemployment without focusing also on the families of those people, right? The children, the 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 other dependents, you know, their parents or or, or family members or whatnot. And so, uh, yeah, as this money gets less and less, right? It becomes it does become much harder to do anything on a single income, and. And you're pulled, you know, also people who don't necessarily, who don't have a partner who can go get the kids, you know, while you're working because they, I keep coming back to this, but it's my own, you know, personal fear, I guess, of my, my kids being sent home from school to quarantine because there was a COVID you know, positive coronavirus test or whatnot. I mean, what do people do uh, in that situation if you don't have somebody who can cover for you or do the, deal, that, deal with that while you're at work? So, you know, we, we have a system that's set up to, it's hard for anybody, but it's definitely, you know, set up to not make it easy for folks who are single, who don't have, you know, the ability to have childcare. We don't, you know, many, many places have free childcare, um, extended uh, maternity and paternity leave, you know, things along those lines. We just don't provide those support systems. And yeah, it is, you're absolutely right, Gene. Right? This as the as housing gets more expensive, more and more, you know, families with a single person as the head of the household are going to find themselves pushed into work, less and less desirable housing or evicted. And as you know, you get evicted once and it follows you around for a long, long time, right. and have these all these downstream effects from this moment in our lives that is, you know, that we could have and still could extend the safety net that's out there to keep people from falling into that. Mm -hmm. And as you've mentioned on the program a couple of times, Serge, you know, we can all laugh about first, last, and a security deposit. It's no laughing matter when you're all alone. You don't have that kind of rolling capital just to move into a new place. It's crazy. Absolutely. Uh, last question, I, I'm holding you guys a little bit longer than I, I planned on it. It's just been a, a dynamite conversation here. 
What would be, in your view, the perfect scenario for New Mexico going forward? Is it your view that the state should step up and, and extend a little bit more here? Or what's the best way we should go? Absolutely. I think that's what you know, all of us have been in one way or another saying that the, 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 the state, the federal government should find a way to continue these benefit programs and find a way to continue these programs in a way that, that effectively gets the money to the people most in need during this time. Um, and, and, and to also focus in, because while I agree with what Serge was saying that you know, it was important to get out this money quickly, I think there were many things that occurred that will need to be dealt with. And, and, and I encourage the PWS to think about how we're going to be dealing with those issues, particularly when it comes to these large overpayments and the recoupment of these overpayments, um, making sure that we have due process, that we allow the appellate process to, to move forward so that these individuals have um, their, the opportunity to argue either for a waiver or for something. You know, there are instances where we are asking individuals for $25,000 back from unemployment benefits. I've even heard up to $40,000 that individuals are being asked to pay back. Um, so while it's important that we continue these benefits and that we extend these benefits, it's also important that we're paying attention to those issues that were created in our rush to get out these benefits so that we can fix them and so that we can all work together to ensure that we don't cause more suffering because we were trying to quickly get out these benefits. I, like I said, I agree with Serge that there were some states that waited months Pandemic unemployment assistance didn't go out till October in some instances. We were rolling it out by April of 2020. Um, and that's great, but it caused a lot of issues that we will need to think about. And, and definitely um, encouraging the state, the federal government to work together to find the funds to extend these programs and continue supporting these people that, that are supporting their families and our economy. You know, it's gonna, it's gonna help all of us if we continue helping these individuals that aren't going to be able to go back to work the way we do. That's a, that's a hard message to get across, isn't it? That it, there's something in it for all of us if these folks can stay afloat a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Our economy, we, we, these individuals are buying right now. They're going to restaurants. They're, they're, right. they're buying school supplies. They're allowing their children to go to field trips where they spend a little bit of money at the zoo potentially, wherever that might be. Our economy is being helped by these benefits. If we cut them off, I feel like we are going to see, like other southern states that cut them early, that our economy is going to suffer, that people are going to suffer, and that the entire state of New Mexico um, isn't going to benefit from, from this drastic cutoff. And like Serge said earlier, the, the, the economy being back where it was in 2020 and these benefits being cut off are just not needed. And so we're, 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 we're not um, really at a point where we should be doing this. Yeah. Interesting points there. Guys, I can't thank you enough. At some point, perhaps we can catch up again as this, uh, you know, this danger point comes in late October, early November. And just to see where we are, I, you know, we're anxious at New Mexico PBS, again, to keep these kind of things out in front of the public's eye a little more, you know, solidly and before the fact and not after the fact, so we can all be a little bit prepared here. So Professor Serge Martinez from UNM, really thank you so much, my old friend. I appreciate that. T. Gonzalez and Felipe Guevara, from New Mexico Center for Law and Poverty. Really appreciate your time and efforts here. And folks, we'll see you Friday night at seven, once again for New Mexico in Focus on Channel 5.1. Take care till then. Thanks, Steve. Good stuff. Mm -hmm. Are we clear? Uh, and it's just a quick sec. Looking at the little live button still up there. I mean, I just want to comment on what Felipe said about the zoo.
One of the things we touched on last week is the fact that the U.S. Labor Department is uh, letting states know that they could use federal COVID relief money to extend some of those unemployment benefits if they see fit. Still waiting to see if that's going to happen here in New Mexico, but we got that tidbit from Labor Secretary, uh, U.S. Labor Secretary Marty Walsh last week when he sat down on Zoom with our correspondent Antonia Gonzalez. And we shot, shared that with you last week, but it was just part of a larger conversation the two had about where the workforce as a country stands right now. More importantly, here in New Mexico, uh, what, what he is seeing as the secretary, what efforts they are doing to help get people back to work, get people made whole after the COVID-19 pandemic, and especially in tribal communities. So a lot of great information here. We wanted to make sure we got to you as well. So here's correspondent Antonia Gonzalez with U.S. Labor Secretary Marty Walsh. U.S. Secretary of Labor Marty Walsh, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me today. So take us back for a minute. Let's reflect on the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. What happened with the U.S. workforce? Well, quite honestly, when the pandemic uh, first hit America, uh, I was in a different role. I was mayor of the city of Boston. And uh, just like what we had to do in Boston, pretty much all across America, we had to remotely learn, send our kids home. Uh, we had to shut our businesses down. Restaurants were shut down. Industry basically stopped. Uh, a lot of transition to online learning and online working uh, happened. Uh, and then uh, the, the Congress passed uh, the CARES Act, uh, which, which was an unemployment benefit plan and an eviction moratorium. And we did that in the city of Boston ourselves. In many states across the country did in the very beginning uh, and quite honestly over the first you know 18 months of, of the pandemic uh, cities and towns and states were pretty much on their own uh, figuring out how to move forward uh, president biden uh, came into office in january uh, one of the first things he did was, was pass the american rescue plan uh, and embedded in that plan was a, a vaccine plan to vaccinate uh, get 100 million shots out in the first 100 days uh, he was able to get 200 million shots out uh, in the first 100 days and since that time uh, he's gotten our economy back on track for 4.1 million workers in America, million and worker, million workers in America, I should say, are back at work and, and we're moving forward. And, and, and quite honestly, we're still, doing, still have about 70% of adults in America have at least one vaccine shot. Uh, the one thing I will say to everyone is that uh, vaccines are, are part of the answer to continue to keep our economy open. Uh, so we're encouraging the president's encouraging and, and the Department of Labor is encouraging people to get vaccinated. And this Labor Day, what now does the workforce look like nationally? Well, I think this Labor Day is uniquely different uh, from last year. Last year, we were in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, this year, we still have a pandemic with us, uh, but, but we're seeing Americans get back to work. We're starting to see American, the American economy starting to get moving again. Uh, but what we have to do is you know, remember and recognize our essential workers for the work they've done. Uh, remember and recognize our hospital workers, our nurses and the doctors and and support staff in hospitals because they've done some amazing work. They've gone through, depending on where you live, two or three or four surges uh, in infection rates. So what we want to do now with the president's focus on with, with the infrastructure bills uh, is making sure they get passed, but also making sure that we continue to get Americans vaccinated so that we can, we can move beyond the virus. And the Biden administration has committed to working closely with tribal nations across the country. You yourself have met with some tribal leaders. 
what is your agency doing to make sure that tribal communities are included in anything having to do with the workforce? Well, we're making sure uh, anytime that I've had either visit in person, a tribal community or on, on a phone, on Zoom meetings we've had, uh, the importance of workforce development, the importance of apprenticeship programs, making sure that we're, we're supporting the, the nations with, with, the, with the ability for people to, to be able to get a good paying job and support their family. Uh, and then also working on other issues such as infrastructure. Uh, you know, when you really think about the infrastructure bill, it's for all, all people in the country. Uh, it, it, it crosses all different lines and really making sure that the, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, uh, the Build Back Better agenda, which is the CARES Economy Infrastructure Bill, that we continue to, to move those two bills forward because it's long-term investments in people, uh, workforces, and also our physical infrastructure in our country. And what are some of the needs you've heard from tribal leaders? There are some tribes that do have their own labor departments. There are other tribes that are really struggling to not only find workers for their communities, but to also um, just get their community members back to work. A lot of what I hear, well, a couple of things. One is investments in job training uh, and investments in workforce development. I hear that consistently across the board. Uh, and then in infrastructure. And with the Build Back Better agenda, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, uh, we have an opportunity to do both of those things. And it's important that we continue to make, make those relationships and, and to make those, make those investments in the communities. Um, you know, I was in uh, last week, uh, there would, we also talked about uh, capping orphan wells. Uh, and, and on a lot of the nation, uh, there's orphan wells. So how do we do that? But how do we also retrain the workers that were working in those, those, those oil refineries or gas refineries that, that were working, you know, several years ago. And talk a little bit about what support resources the U.S. Labor Department has for not only job seekers, but employers. We have an opportunity right now through our American Job Center to, with 2,400 American job centers around the country uh, that are willing and ready and able to, to help people, connect people to, to, to jobs that are open, connect people to the training, ready building. Uh, and I recommend to people, you know, we've been really pushing those out uh, because they're quite honestly in almost every community in every state in our country. Uh, and it's an opportunity and it's, it's a connection for people to, to use the resource that the federal government has and the Department of Labor has to, to connect people to jobs. So I encourage people that are out there looking right now and, and not sure what's next, you know, reach out to American Job Center in your community. And should states like New Mexico use federal COVID-19 relief aid to extend expiring unemployment benefits for people? Well, that's an option that we, we allow the states to make that decision. They're going to have to make it, uh, each state will have to make their own decision. But I think if you're a governor, in, in, and I, I was with the governor in Mexico last week, uh, if you're a governor, you have to make a determination on where you are with the virus, where you are with the Delta variant, how, how high is the numbers, uh, and, and what's the risk of people going back to work. So that's going to be uh, an individual state-by-state -state concern or, or, or opportunity to do that. But, but myself and Secretary Yellen, uh, did uh, allow, when I say allowed, we wrote, a, we wrote an opinion saying that states can use the American Rescue Plan money that they have to uh, continue on uh, unemployment benefits. And any kind of projection you can share as we're continuing with life during the pandemic of looking at the job force and boosting the economy nationally? I wish I could. I wish I could tell you right now that, that you know, we'll be beyond the pandemic by the end of October and and we're going to be back to full employment by Christmas. Uh, unfortunately, you know, as the, the, the coronavirus and the Delta variant have been very unpredictable, obviously, 
Uh, we're still learning a lot about it. So what we want to do is just encourage people uh, to get vaccinated, to wear masks, to be careful, be safe. Uh, and, and then also, because we, we want to support industry and companies so they can bring people back to work. So that's really the, 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 the focus, what we have to do now, I think, for the next couple of months here. And any message to share with um, people as you know they are looking at the Labor Day holiday and beyond? I want to first just say happy Labor Day, everybody. And please, you know, don't forget our essential workers. When you go to a grocery store, if you're gonna have a cookout, you're gonna be, you know, you're gonna be shopping. Just thank the essential workers. Those folks, you know, went to work for the last 19 months. They didn't complain. Uh, they went to work in the beginning of the pandemic when many people didn't understand uh, what was happening here. And, and when we were telling people to stay home, they came to work. So I think it's important for us to understand that. And secondly, you know, President Biden and Vice President Harris are really focused on making sure we get America back to work, getting people back to jobs, good paying jobs and, and continuing. That's why the big push for the two infrastructure bills is really creating better opportunities for people in our country, including the people in New Mexico. U.S. Secretary of Labor, Marty Walsh, thank you for joining us. Thank you. In our most recent uh, on-air show on New Mexico PBS, our line opinion panel had an interesting conversation about a new proposed federal hotline, very similar to 911, which we all know a thing or two about. Or if you're in Albuquerque, you can think about 311, where you can call and get information about a variety of city services, an easy way, fast way to try to get information very quickly. This new hotline would be 988, uh, and it will be online federally uh, across the country next year, uh, focusing specifically on mental health issues. And again, similar to 911, getting people help they need in a crisis situation, most especially suicide prevention but it comes at an interesting time in New Mexico where we are moving to uh, the need to dial 10 digits on any phone number you dial. And that's in part because of this hotline, as there are area codes that are 988. And so you don't want that to bog down the phone lines for people trying to get to this hotline. But we wanted to know, would this lead to confusion? And given our shortage of behavioral health resources, will the hotline be able to do enough to help those people in desperate need. So going to talk now to our line opinion folks. A reminder, that is uh, former state Senator Eric Riego this week, also former state Senator Diane Snyder, and Julianne Grimm of the Santa Fe Reporter. They joined host Gene Grant. New Mexicans struggling with a mental health crisis will soon have a new resource to get timely, effective help. It's designed on the now familiar model of 911 for medical emergencies. The three digits now are 988. The hotline was a bipartisan federal effort signed into law by then President Trump in the waiting months of his presidency. It's described as an extension of the National Suicide Prevention Line and is expected to be up and running by July of next year. State officials are holding listening sessions right now to help them formulate a plan for implementing the federal hotline here at home. And Senator Grego, this has obviously worked well with 911 and even 311 here in Albuquerque. I'll remind folks for getting answers to basic questions surrounding city services. And you were around at council when that thing got uh, put in place, as a matter of fact. Do you think this could have, make an impact in terms of mental health services? Is, is this what we needed to have a direct line here? So, so I'm all for more opportunities for people to access services, but the bottom line, like 911, 9311, you got to put the resources behind it. So if we have some place to call, 
you got to be able to <laughs> refer somebody. And our biggest problem now is there aren't enough services for people who need basic mental health care. So if we put their, our money behind it and really fund the kind of infrastructure on mental health. Mm-hmm. So when you call you can get services, I'm all for it. I hope it's not just a way to channel people and say, hey, you know, uh, why don't you try calling uh, the Medicaid office on Monday and see if you can get an appointment next October, you know, which is what happens now, unfortunately. That's often, right. right? Mm-hmm. That's a fair point. Uh, Senator, Senator Snyder, experts like the U.S. Surgeon General have said we are headed for a mental health crisis coming out of this pandemic. People have been living in largely survival mode. You know, New Mexico, New Mexico has an additional wrinkle, of course. We're still trying to recover from the dismantling of the state's behavioral health system. So is this new hotline going to help with any of this? I sincerely hope so. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the things that I learned over the last few years is that New Mexico uh, has the high, nationally has the highest suicide rate for veterans uh, of any other state. And that within that, that we have the highest suicide rate for women veterans. So we don't have, as Mm. Senator said, we don't have the resources. So with the phone line, which is, I think, an excellent idea, you've got to put those resources into place. Mm-hmm. I, I am fully for it. I think we, but we need to stop pretending that, oh yeah, talking a good game, I guess is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Get with it and get the resources in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, Julianne, the benefit of the three-digit hotline, according to supporters, is that everything is streamlined. No chance of drop calls, you know, 911, 311, all that kind of thing. That makes some logical sense, it seems to me, when someone is really in a tough jam. Am I thinking of this wrong? It seems like this that's not a bad way to go here. No, but I I think it will take a long time for it to catch on and really be useful um, to people. You Mm -hmm. know, it's the reason why New Mexico had to start using the area code when we dial, Mm -hmm. you know, not just the 505, but the 575, wherever you are, you have to use that now uh, because many phone numbers in our state, including the phone number for the reporter, begin with 988. Uh, Um, So I I think that's one thing that, you know, people will be catching on to. Um, I'm just also concerned about getting the message out and will the people who need this message the most really receive it i'm thinking about teenagers you know our state um as you know the senator said we've got one of the highest suicide rates in the nation um it affects young people you know between 2014 and 2018 fully a third of the suicides in our state were people between 15 and 24 and so making sure that young people know about 988 and are willing to use it and when they use it they actually get a target service that helps them Mm -hmm. i think those are some of the challenges ahead Mm Senator Griego, you know, is this an opportunity for us to, you know, boost behavioral health resources? And what more are we missing beyond just a hotline, you know, which we've had for a while now in terms of suicide prevention? Is there another step beyond this line we could be taking? Well, you mentioned the dismantling of the behavioral health system. I think we're Mm -hmm. still not where we need to be. I Mm -hmm. think we're trying to rebuild it. Um, I think if we're serious about a comprehensive, deep strategy on dealing with behavioral health, it's it's the, the kind of dollars that we're prepared to invest. Um, it's kind of like this whole early childhood uh, uh, constitutional amendment and the funding we've been talking about. Mm. You have to start from how are you going to get people to go into the field so that you, 
you have enough people in social work and 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 counselors to actually meet the demand. But anyone who in who's tried to access this care for family members or for themselves knows that it's a very very tough. If you don't have insurance, um, it's really tough to access. And so. I think if we're serious about it, let's put our money where our mouth is and let's put the kind of resources that we've put into, for example, law enforcement. Like it's always, they're always, we can never possibly give enough money to law enforcement. Well, I think even most people in law enforcement was like, yeah, we need to be better funding behavioral health and mental health services so that that would make our lives and our community safer and our jobs easier because we're, we're under investing in it. And, and that's across the state. Even the, right. even the places that have really made commitments to it are not really investing enough in that pipeline for providers and then making it really easy to get services, not just ask for services, but mm -hmm. to actually get the services. Mm -hmm. And we've all, we all expect our police to be handling other things at this point than these type of calls. The public listening sessions on the New Mexico rollout of the 988 hotline continue through September 23rd. We'll have information on our website about how you can participate in those remaining sessions. You can also track that info on all things NMIF on our YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages. Another story we've been trying to keep you up to date on, a very fast-moving uh, story, is the arrival of Afghan refugees here in New Mexico. We know there are some on part of Fort Bliss, which is in El Paso, but some of that comes into New Mexico. Also, Holloman Air Force Base, we know, is accepting some of the refugees as well, uh, in addition to a handful of military installations across the U.S., and our senior producer, Matt Grubbs, recently caught up with the Deputy uh, Secretary for the Human Services Department, Angela Madrano, to get an update on what we know, what we don't know about these refugees and what happens next. And as you'll hear, still a lot of question marks there, but we will stay on top of this, try to get us some good answers and information as we move forward. But wanted to bring this to you as well. Uh, something that um, is on the top of mind for a lot of folks here in New Mexico, even leading to political debate about how the vetting process is going for these people. As you will hear, some of them will not be staying in New Mexico. Some of them will undoubtedly try to resettle here and lots of questions about how we pay for that and what resources are available. So here now that interview with senior producer Matt Grubbs and HSD Deputy Secretary Angela Medrano. Angela Madrano, thanks for taking a few minutes to talk about the refugee resettlement program. Um, I know you probably have the same questions that everyone else in New Mexico has at this point, which is how many people are going to be arriving from Afghanistan and when? Um, what do you know right now? Thank you, Matt. It's good to, to see you again. Um, New Mexico at this point, Human Services Department um, knows that Holloman Air Force Base has been selected as one of the receiving sites for refugees in New Mexico. Uh, I am not aware of any individuals that have arrived yet. That's not to say that they have not, um, but we are working very closely with our partners in New Mexico to prepare for the arrival. One of the things that I've heard um, from uh, officials at the White House is that not everyone who comes to Holloman Air Force Base or to Fort Bliss is going to be relocated in New Mexico. These are just the military installations that have been identified. Do you have a sense of what 
portion might be coming to New Mexico, um, or is that still up in the air right now? It's still up in the air right now, Matt. Uh, it's very, very hard to know how many refugees will choose to resettle in New Mexico. Um, but we are in close communication with our contractor, Lutheran Family Services, who will be providing many of the services that the refugees will need as they transition um, to Holloman or who choose to resettle in New Mexico. That's an important point, I think. Uh, it's a choice for them? Mm -hmm. Okay. Absolutely. Yes, they, they may, some of the refugees may arrive in New Mexico with family that are already located in the United States, either in New Mexico or in another state. Uh, refugees may arrive with no family members in the United States, uh, but may have some resources available to them. And these individuals will make a choice about where they'd like to reside within the US. And um, some may arrive with no resources and no family members available to them. And those are the ones I anticipate we would be providing the most assistance to. Okay, and you mentioned that Lutheran Family Services is a contractor with the state to, to handle a lot of this. When do they sort of um, pick up the baton and start coordinating some of these services? At what point in the process? That's a great question, Matt. You know, they've been working very, very hard with their national um, part or their national uh, organization to be in close communication about those individuals that may be uh, wishing to resettle in New Mexico because there are other military bases where uh, these individuals are arriving to, they may choose New Mexico and be transported to New Mexico to resettle in. Okay. We spoke to a, a man named Mullah Akbar who emigrated from Afghanistan in the late 1980s. He owns a business down in Albuquerque. Um, he pointed out that while it's small, there is a community of, of Afghan families in New Mexico and it's growing. What role do they play in this process? Gosh, Matt, I would assume that they would help to make this transition as smooth as possible for them and hopefully um, step in to help uh, volunteer with Lutheran Family Services or any of the other faith-based organizations that are gonna be providing assistance to these individuals and help them feel welcome. Is this the sort of situation where a person or a, um, a family needs some sort of sponsorship to be able to enter the US or are they able to enter on their own through um, some of the immigration status um, statuses, I guess, that the, that the federal government designates? Yeah, they're, they're not required to have a sponsor, to my knowledge, Matt. So some of these individuals may not know anyone in the United States and um, will have to make a decision about where they'd like to, to settle. Do you have any COVID concerns or is that something that's probably well taken care of by the time the state or uh, Lutheran Family Services ends up interacting with these folks? I don't have a lot of information about the COVID testing. It's my understanding that they are being tested upon arrival into the U.S., but I don't have confirmation of that from any formal source. Okay. I know we're just in the early stages right now. Are there any comparisons that you can make to the, to the influx of Latin immigrants and asylum seekers that we saw in, in 2019? I wasn't involved in that effort, Matt, so I can't speak to that in my career. This is the largest uh, effort I've worked with, 
and partnering with our team at HSD um, and working with Lutheran Family Services, I'm finding this to be a very educational process for myself as well as we go through these steps. Certainly. The program, it, to my understanding, it relies on federal funds or does the state kick in money too? It's a federally funded program, Matt. They provide, they provide us with a grant of award each year specifically for this refugee effort. It's the Office of Refugee Resettlement Office that awards New Mexico funding. Uh, in federal fiscal year 20, we were awarded 1.2 million. Uh, thus far in, in federal fiscal year 21, we've been awarded 1.1 million. That sounds, it's millions of dollars, of course, but it doesn't sound like a lot. Do you anticipate needing more? Depending on the number of individuals that choose to resettle in New Mexico, Matt, you are spot on. We may need additional funding, and I have not yet heard of um, any potential funding coming our way as a result of this effort. So we are staying in co close communication with our federal partners about that. I know that uh, part of your job is not just speaking to the media, but talking to legislators too. Are you getting a lot of, of similar questions from them? I haven't yet, Matt, but I'm headed to a legislative committee where this may come up. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, we will let you get to that. Uh, Human Services Department Deputy Secretary Angela Madrano, we really thank you for your time. Thank you, Matt. Take care. That'll do it for another episode of New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. We always appreciate you listening in, taking us with you wherever you go. Ask you to please encourage friends, family, acquaintances to subscribe. Best way to get the content from the show, including that extra content we just don't have time for on our on-air broadcast each week. And a reminder to follow all of our social media channels for a lot of this content and to continue the conversation with us there as well. YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, uh, and uh, Facebook. Almost lost that one for a second, but all four of those, we are there and active. Drop us a line there. Just search for New Mexico in focus. Until next time, be sure to stay safe and stay healthy.